Hello and welcome to the weekly sermon by White Sulphur Baptist of Georgetown, Kentucky. We hope that you find this resource encouraging and helpful. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, but we would love to see you in person on Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Thanks again for tuning in. All right, well, welcome, White Sulphur. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, It's good to have such a a great gathering here with us. We're in uh, Mark chapter 8. Go ahead and turn there. I'll give you a head start. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1. We're going to go all the way through verse 26 this morning. Look at that group of kids that are leaving. That's pretty exciting, right? Take a second and celebrate that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and that big one sneaking out. (laughs) All right, Mark chapter 8, 1 through 26 is where we're going to be. If you're new or visiting, if you're watching online for the first time, whatever the case may be, we started this series going through the gospel of Mark at the beginning of the year, and we stopped halfway through. We took a break. We went through Summer of Psalms, and now we're back in Mark. We're going to finish it out the end of this year. And so, if again, if you're new, you, then you probably didn't catch uh, the introduction that I did at the beginning of the series. And so we're going to do a quick recap this morning. We said that this is good news for hard times. Yeah, just like the graphic says, right? Mark is good news for hard times. It is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the earliest circulated gospel on paper. This is the one that would have been handed to Christians in the heat of of persecution, the ones that were being fed to lions in coliseums, the ones that were worshiping literally in underground grave sites, in tombs, because it was the only safe place that they could find to worship without being put to death, without facing persecution. So for a moment, imagine yourself. Maybe, at best, you have some kind of candle or oil lamp, and you're trying to read the words that we're going to be reading this morning, these exact same words. Words And in that darkness with literal uh, dead bodies laying around you in these tombs, you're trying to praise the Lord. This is good news for those kinds of hard times where it's dark and there's death all around us. There's suffering. This is the kind of good news that these people would have been clinging to. It's written by Mark, but likely dictated to Mark by the apostle Peter because they traveled together and did a lot of ministry together. A lot of the things that are written down, Peter would have seen firsthand, not Mark. And so Mark is recording for us, really, in a sense, the gospel of Peter, Peter's presentation of what he saw and what he experienced through the life of Jesus Christ. This is the most concise and fastest moving gospel out of all four gospels, which seems typical of Peter, right? He's kind of like an act first, think later kind of guy. And then this happened and then this happened. He's a man of action. That makes sense with who we believe probably was the dictator of this book. It was written specifically for non-Jewish Christians. What we see is that there's a lot of the Old Testament references left out of this one because it, would have, it wouldn't have made sense to Jewish Christians or Jewish converts. It would have clouded the gospel. It would have complicated things. And so Mark's presenting it in a way that a non-Jewish audience can actually understand what is being said. Again, it would have been in the hands of Christians facing horrible persecution. And the the word gospel literally means good news. And it's still good news 
for us today. And that's why we're taking our time to go through it verse by verse, passage by passage. In fact, I'd like to turn your attention to uh, chapter 1, verse 1 of Mark. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you would like to, because this really sets the stage for the rest of the book. This, is, this one line is so incredibly important to understand who it is that Mark is writing about, that Mark is talking about. It says this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, in that one sentence, in that one small, concise statement, there is a lot packed in there. That sets the stage, like I said, for the rest of the gospel. So by starting his gospel this way, Mark is telling us at least four things. That Jesus is the Son of God, not the Roman Emperor. And this was an issue at the time. The Roman emperors were setting themselves up as gods that that the people were to worship and see as deity. They were even calling themselves sons of God. And so starting his gospel this way, again, if if we agree that it's being dictated by Peter, this makes sense, right? Because Peter's got a little bit of a feisty personality. So he starts off drawing a line in the sand saying, no, emperor, you are not the son of God. Jesus the Christ is the son of God. Jesus of Nazareth is the one and only Son of God. And then we see the second thing is that Jesus is the Christ. And this does tie into uh, the Jewish traditions and prophecy that we're uh, expecting Jesus, right? This long-awaited Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one. He said this does have a historical basis, a historical root for us in this gospel. That he is the Son of God, he is deity. He's not just a man. He's not even just a special man. He's man and God. Both. Fully. That is the Jesus that we worship. That he is God incarnate. That came to the earth to save sinners. And again, all of this wrapped up is good news. And that's how Mark starts his gospel. By laying out this foundation for us. And so, fast forward to chapter 8. We're halfway through the story. We're halfway through Jesus doing miracles and healing people. Jesus preaching and teaching and casting out demons. We've seen all that so far, and that's going to continue this morning. Jesus has uh, definitely caused a, uh, a stir with the Pharisees and the religious leaders at this point. They're irritated with him, which we will get into more in a second. But the point of the passage this morning, Mark 8, 1 through 26, is seeing Christ clearly. And that's the necessity for all of us. And, you know, I have seen what happens when we don't see things clearly. I've witnessed this myself. I have permission to share these stories, okay? So I'm going to share two of them with you this morning. Uh, Both of them have to do with my wife. She's left the room now, so I believe it's safe. But anyways, uh, not that long ago, Bethany and I were sitting on the front porch of our house. Our uh, front porch overlooks another farm across the highway from us. And Bethany was out there before me. I think she was, you know, sipping on a sweet tea or something, just kind of enjoying her evening. The sun is setting. I come out there and I sit down and we're talking about, you know, how much we love where we live and how beautiful it is. And and she's like, it's just so serene. You know, you look over here and you've got this beautiful big black barn and, you know, you've got these rolling green hills, these beautiful trees. There's all kinds of stuff that's just so beautiful. And she goes, look, there's this big herd of cows that are just right up here next to the fence. And they're they're just relaxing under the under the shade of the trees, you know, as the sun's going down. And kind of as she's talking, I'm looking, I'm like, I don't see any cows. And I'm letting her talk and letting her talk. And if you don't know Bethany, Bethany wears contact lenses. Okay, And so when she doesn't have her contact lenses in, 
it all goes downhill. I have, you know, it, she's not, it's not safe for her to be alone when she doesn't have her contact lenses in, okay? And so we're sitting out there, and, and, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't see any cows. And I said, where are the cows? And she said, right on, you know, they're just enjoying the shade over there. And I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I'm like, that's a rock wall. And she, she goes, no. She's like, I've been watching them move back and forth and flick their tails. And I'm looking, I'm like, one of us is crazy because there are no cows over here. And, and I said, there's birds running back and forth across the rock wall, but there's no cows over there. And so Bethany, without her contact lenses, she can't see clearly. She can't perceive her environment accurately. One more example from the life of Bethany. And this one's even better. It's my favorite. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I know. She can hear me. I, I got permission before I did this. I almost did it, and I knew better. I've been married long enough now. So uh, uh, this was a few years ago. Um, we are, it's nighttime. We're walking up to our friend's house. They have a white husky, solid white husky, right? Uh, <laughs> again, I don't think Bethany had her contact lenses in. She might have had her glasses on, but that's not good enough. Uh, we're walking up to this house, and she sees the dog on the front porch. And the dog's name is Leonidas, but we call him Leo. And so she whistles. She's like, Leo, come here, boy. Come on. Come on. I mean, she's calling him and calling him. And she's, if you know Bethany, she loves dogs. She loves animals, right? So it's a big deal when she gets to greet a dog that she knows and loves. She's calling this dog and calling this dog. And she's like, why won't Leo come to me? She's like, he, he always responds when I whistle or when I call. <laughs> and and as, again, I'm, we're walking up. I'm like, I don't see that dog anywhere. Like, I don't know what she's talking about. And as we get closer to the house, I'll, I'll save you the rest of the story. We'll condense this down a little bit. Uh, it turns out there was a large white trash bag <laughs> on, on the front porch. And Bethany is calling that trash bag to come to her and is sad that the trash bag has rejected her love. Uh, <laughs> And so you see that it's necessary to, to see clearly the things that are around us, in front of us, because what is actually there dictates how we react to it, how we interact with it. It matters that we can see things clearly, and most supremely, most, most importantly over all things, is how we see Christ. That is the most important thing in our lives, that we have to be able to see him truly clearly, fully for who he is and what he has done. This is the theme for this morning. And so with that, let's go to verse 1 of chapter 8, and I'm going to read through 26. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmathua. Verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. 
And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no one will be given, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and again went to the other side. Verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida. And some, some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. <clears throat> and so this is our passage for this morning. There's a little bit of explanation that I think will be helpful. The, the deaf man and the blind man are highlighting the need for us to perceive Christ. So if you remember in the last chapter, the story of the deaf man is chapter 731 through 37. And then the story of the blind man in our chapter this morning is 822 through 26. Both, both of these miracles sandwich this statement from Jesus about the disciples not being able to hear or see who he is and what he's teaching. That he is using these examples, these illustrations of these healings to point to their spiritual need. And he's highlighting that by sandwiching these things. He says to them, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And so the question for us this morning, the one that, that each one of us really has to answer are, are these. Do I see Jesus clearly? Do I really see who's standing before me? Do I really see the Jesus that's on these pages of Scripture? Do I really know something about him? Why is he so special? Why has the world been turned upside down through his Ministry. Why do we mark calendars and, and periods based on when this man lived? Why has his message spread all the way around the globe without being extinguished? Why has the Bible specifically been preserved in such a way that it is without error? What is it about this man, Jesus, that makes him so special? What did he really accomplish? And really, you have to get down to this. Really, you have to get down to this. You have to wrestle with what Mark says, the very beginning of his gospel. Do I really believe that he is the Son of God? Mark doesn't play any games. He says that's exactly who I'm writing about. He makes it very clear for us what Mark believes about Jesus, what Peter believes about Jesus. So if you do, if you say, well, of course I believe that about Jesus, that demands something 
of you. That means that your life cannot be like everyone else's life. That means your life cannot look the way that it used to look before you come to that conclusion, before you place your faith in Jesus Christ. There's something that it demands of you if these things are true. When you see Jesus clearly for who he really is, everything has to change. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at a couple of examples of people who didn't see Jesus clearly in our passage. And the first is the disciples. The disciples, they, they couldn't see Christ. The disciples couldn't see him. They wanted to. They were following, right? They're, they're trying to follow along. They're trying to put the pieces together, but they're not quite there yet. They've seen how many miracles at this point, especially when it comes to bread. There's this theme of Jesus doing these miracles around bread and fish and feeding people. And yet every time they run out of food, they act like the world is ending and he can't do something about it. And Jesus is so patient with them. So have you ever been so focused you know, on what you were doing that you missed what was going on around you? And I think this is kind of getting to the, the core of what was happening with the disciples at this point. Maybe you've been so focused with your perceived needs that you missed the solution that's standing in front of you. Right? That's what was happening with the disciples. They were so worried that they didn't have bread in their baskets that they forgot that the creator of everything that goes into making bread is sitting in the boat with them. They've seen him already be faithful in the past, and yet the next time that something comes up that they don't understand, they, they lose all of their hope. They start to panic. They miss the thing that is right in front of them. And we can do this. And both of these things are common in, in families and in churches. Like the disciples, if we aren't careful, we can be consumed with our ministry. That's what this, the disciples were doing, right? They were going out. They were ministering. They were tired. They were taking care of people. We can be consumed with our little corner of God's kingdom and what we need to be doing there. And we end up forgetting that all of these things are interdependent upon each other, that we need each other, that we're to be helping and supporting each other across the spectrum of the kingdom, the disciples missed how the miracles of feeding the 5,000, the healing of the deaf, the healing of the blind, they were supposed to be teaching them something about themselves. That Jesus doesn't just entertain, ever. He's always using these things. That the miracles that happen in the physical realm are pointing towards spiritual realities. That is the purpose. He's not a magician that is just looking for an applause. And again, a danger in church is that we become consumed so consumed with serving Jesus that we forget to stop and see Jesus. And that's what the disciples had done. They were serving. They were working. But they weren't communing. They weren't seeing. They weren't savoring the Lord that was in the boat with them. They had no sense of awe or marvel at who it was that was afloat with them on the sea. In Luke 10, 38 through 42, we see this story about Martha and Mary. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. 
So Jesus says that, that Mary chose to prioritize the right thing. The Lord before the serving of the Lord. Keeping her eyes fixed on, on what he actually has to say to her. The relationship that she's establishing with him comes first before the serving of him. If we get those things out of order, it all starts to fall apart because the work of, of serving Christ and serving the church can actually become our functional idol if we're not careful. That we, that we love the work more than the Lord. And that was the mistake that was made here, and it was the mistake that this, the disciples were making. Maybe you've spent your whole Christian life looking down at your Christian work and not up at the Savior. Sitting at his feet, looking up to him. Maybe it's time to slow down, to get to know him and to see him for who he really is. The danger is that if we don't do this, we can work our entire lives for Christ and never get to know what he looks like. That his glory could be right in front of us and we won't recognize it because we've stayed too busy serving him to see him. So that's the disciples. They want to see Christ, right? But there's some things holding them back. And as we'll see in a few minutes, that there's a process that oftentimes the Lord takes us through. But the second group of people are the Pharisees that we read about in chapter 8. Now, the Pharisees didn't choose to see Christ. They didn't want to see Christ. And so they didn't. The disciples were pursuing, right? But there were still some things that the Lord had to peel back to help them see. The Pharisees are another Example In their case, they're looking for a Jesus, a Messiah of their own making. One that kind of fits what they would really prefer. Uh, one that is going to be the thing that doesn't really challenge them. A Jesus that doesn't ask anything of them. That doesn't require anything of their lives. That kind of just is an add-on to what they're already doing. They're comfortable with their lives. They're popular people. They're often uh, well-off financially. And they have this status of being very religious and, and moral people. And so they don't really want anything to change because they're comfortable. These people are blinded by their own pride and offense. Because there is this kind of smackdown that Jesus gives them in chapter 7, 1 through 23, where he calls them out on their hypocrisy. He calls them out saying, you would keep all of these church traditions, but you don't love people and you don't love the Lord. And so you do all of these things. You keep all the traditions of your elders, but your heart is empty. Your heart is cold. That's hypocrisy. And so they're a little bit bitter on that still. They're not happy that they were embarrassed in front of people, called out like this. And so they show up to challenge Jesus again. They show up to discredit Jesus. And this time they demand a sign, specifically from heaven. So what they're saying is that the deaf hearing, the blind seeing, demons being cast out, uh, the miraculous feeding of thousands and thousands, that's just not enough, Jesus. We're going to need to see some more proof. So, uh, bring us something from heaven. And really what they're getting at is they want to see something more like a Sodom and Gomorrah kind of event. They want to see fire raining down. They want to see something big and spectacular. And again, Jesus is not in the business of simply performing for people. He's not a, a cheap street uh, magician that has his hat out accepting dollars and quarters. Jesus is the Lord, the King, and he doesn't necessarily take requests from people when it comes to signs. So Jesus refuses their requests. And in fact, in, in Matthew's gospel, Mark leaves this out because it wouldn't have made sense to a non-Jewish audience. But in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells them the only sign that you're going to be given is the sign of Jonah. 
which is a reference to his death, burial, and resurrection. And so if that's not good enough for you, nothing will be good enough. You will not place your faith in Christ, and that is your decision. The uncomfortable truth for a lot of us is that to live in unbelief of God is for them to be willfully rebelling against the God of the Bible like the Pharisees. They had all they needed to know who Jesus was. And we know this because not all of them actually denied Jesus. Nicodemus, right, in John chapter 3, he sneaks away at night and he comes to Jesus and he says, I want to know a little bit more about this, but just don't tell anyone that I'm asking, okay? I'm just a little too nervous for that right now. And Jesus starts walking him through these things. He says, are you not a teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand this? You're a Pharisee. You have large portions, if not the entire Old Testament, memorized. And yet you don't realize they testify to me and to who I am. We willfully deny the truth of the Bible. In fact, uh, Paul clearly explains in Romans 1, 18 through 23, that, that while atheists say they don't believe God exists, God doesn't really believe that atheists exist. And that's his argument in, in Romans chapter 1. Listen to this, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul says there's no one that actually doesn't believe in God. It's just a matter of whether you're suppressing the truth that is obvious and has been made plain to you. You are without excuse, Paul says. So if you're, if you're with us this morning, if you're a skeptic or you would identify as uh, you know, a, an atheist or maybe even an agnostic, you're in a very difficult predicament. Because you do know. Because you have seen. Because you're suppressing what you know to be true. And here's the thing. When that word suppressing, right, in Romans here, I want you to imagine that you're in a pool and you've got this giant beach ball. Right? And you're floating around in the pool. And you keep trying to lay on top of it to get it under the water. And it rocks around and maybe you get it for a minute and then it pops back up. That's like the truth. That you're trying to hold down. You can't hold it down. It keeps popping up. There's holes in every non-Christian worldview that cannot be excused, that cannot be reconciled. Paul says, there are no atheists. There are no agnostics. You do know. And you have a choice to make. And that's the good news of the gospel. Is that while you are lost hopelessly in your sin, Jesus died for you. That you can be reconciled to the Father. That you can step into truth. That you can step out of lies. Step out of sin. And that is what is offered to you this morning. So the third thing that we have to talk about is not other people, but you. Can you see Christ clearly? The disciples wanted to. There were things holding them back. The Pharisees didn't want to. So there was a lot of things holding them back. But what about 
you. See, I bet a lot of us could point back to the very day and time, maybe even the event where we gave our lives to the Lord. Right? Maybe you have it written in your Bible even. But I would be willing to bet that if I started asking you about your story and your testimony, there's so much backstory to that day that led up to that day where the Lord was working in your life. Maybe he was uh, slowly and lovingly bringing Christians around you. Right? Maybe they began to witness to you. Maybe they intersected in places that you did not even expect to run into a Christian, and yet there they are. Maybe you had parents that were faithful, and they loved you, and they loved the gospel, so they instilled that in you. They brought you to church. They raised you up knowing the truth. Maybe you had people even secretly praying for you that you didn't know about. For one way or another, there's this kind of process that's happening. The Lord is at work in your heart up until the day that you give him your heart. And then from there, it just gets better. Maybe the Lord walked you through a valley, like the one talked about in the Psalms, a valley through the shadow of death. And that's where he met you. And he took you to that place, that very dark place, so that you could see his light contrasted against it. What I want to do this morning is revisit the blind man from our passage. So turn back to 822. It says this, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, he laid his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus, said, then, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. So do you see the process that this man has taken through in order to regain the sight that he so desperately needed? What's interesting is this isn't how Jesus does every miracle. Sometimes he's not even in the same city as a person, and he just says, your miracle is done, your child is healed, go home and you'll see. Right? He doesn't even have to be there. And yet, with some people, he takes them through this process of healing, this process of regaining their sight. So there's really at least six things that happen here. First is that, uh, the, the man has to have friends willing to bring him to Jesus. We see that over and over and over in the scriptures when it comes to these miracles, that they have faithful people around them, and these people see the person's need, and they say, I know exactly what you need. You need Jesus, and I'll take you to him. He'll open your eyes. He'll give you ears to hear exactly what you need. So that happens, and then Jesus takes him by the hand, and he kind of leads him away. He leads him out of the city to this private place where there's maybe this internal work happening. He leads him away, and then he spits on his eyes. I don't know why he does that, but that's what he chooses to do. He spits on the man's eyes. He lays his hands on him. That's another way of saying praying for him. And then a little bit of vision happens. All of a sudden, he's not completely blind. He can see shapes and maybe some colors, some outlines of things. He says, it looks like trees are walking around. That's not quite perfect, right? So there's this process happening. He lays his hands on him again, and only then is his sight restored. Now, that's fascinating, because I think that a lot of us could relate to this story, that Jesus has taken us through a process of opening our eyes. And he gives us what we need 
uh, for the moment. He gives us what we can handle in the moment. And slowly and patiently and lovingly, he leads us until we can see him for who he is. Now, catch this. The only person in this passage this morning that really seems to be able to see Jesus for who he was was blind seconds ago. All the ones that have their senses and their abilities, they're, they're either still struggling with something or they've completely denied him. But this man that had nothing, that knew his hopeless state without a savior, goes to Jesus and he's like, whatever you can do, please, I need the help. And he's healed. And that's a lot of our stories also. We come to Jesus with nothing. And we say, please, forgive me. Please, heal me. Please, Save me. And he's faithful and just to do those things. Ephesians 1.18 through 23 says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So that when our eyes are open to who Jesus really is, we start to see those things that I just read in Ephesians 1, 18 through 23. We see the magnificence of Jesus. We see his power at work in the world and in our lives and in the church. And we see that he fills all and is in all, that he's working in all things. Our eyes become opened to these things. Nathan, you can join me at this time. When you see Jesus clearly, you'll be filled with gratitude that he saved a sinner like you. You can't help it. If you see him for who he is, that will happen. When you see Jesus clearly, you're consumed by the love he has for you as his adopted child. Because again, you're not just saved, you're welcomed home. That's another layer that he didn't owe to us, but he gave to us in his grace. Seeing Jesus clearly means that you won't be satisfied until you help the whole world see Jesus clearly. You won't be able to help but get involved to get this message out, to get this Jesus to people who have yet to see him. When you see him clearly, you'll begin to realize that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not about political powers. It's about a spiritual warfare that is happening that would love to see people remain blinded. Remain in the darkness. John 1 says that he is the light of the world. Coming into the world in the darkness could not overcome him. But there's a darkness that's actively trying to overcome the light of Christ. When you see him clearly, you will devote yourself to his bride, the church. You'll give generously of your time, talents, and your treasures. Because you want to see that kingdom expand. You want to see people welcomed home. You want to see the lost saved. And this is his plan for doing so, the church. Every Sunday morning, we're not just gathering to hang out. We're on mission on Sunday mornings. Missions don't just happen overseas. They happen right here. This is it. This is the hands and feet of Christ to the world, the church, you, not this building. 
This place could burn down and we would meet in a field because the people are the church. When you really see Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, as Mark tells us that he is, your life can never be the same. It can't. It's impossible. If your life is the exact same, you haven't seen Jesus for who he is. That's a great test of where you're at. Have things changed for you? Do you have new loves, new desires? Is your heart broken over the things that break God's heart? Do you hate sin? Do you love righteousness? We have to see these things clearly. Church, there's coming a time that everyone is going to see Jesus clearly. The point this morning is that I hope that's happening before it's too late. Because even people that have gone to hell for rejecting Jesus, the Christ, they now know who he is very clearly. But at that point, it's too late. Philippians 2, 10 through 11 says, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Tomorrow is not promised. Eternity is a long time. Jesus Christ is good and faithful to forgive you of your sins and welcome you home should you look to him in faith this morning. And so if the Holy Spirit has been cultivating that heart of yours up until this morning, if your eyes are being opened, maybe they've been opened recently and now you're like, what's my next step? What do I do? You have a whole family here that is just so excited to work with you, to walk with you, to show you more and more of who Jesus is. If that's something that's happened this morning, recently come find me at the front. I'm always down here. I'm always available. I want to have those conversations with you. And so we leave that time at the end for response. I'm going to pray. Father, Father, open the eyes of our hearts this morning. Open our ears so that we may hear the gospel, respond to the gospel, that we may love you and treasure you and savor you and find our joy in you. Father, teach us to work heartily because we've seen you. Father, bring us to our knees in worship. Raise our voices in worship. Father, light a fire in us as your church. Father, help us to take this message to our communities and to the world so that all may see and all may hear of Jesus, the one who came to save them. I pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power and work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace this morning.